Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This morning, I want to offer part one of what will be a three-part sermon series over the next three weeks. The title of the series is Rewriting History. And each sermon will come from today's first scripture lesson. We're in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is one of the most famous literary works of human history. It's the second book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And Exodus picks up where the legend of Genesis ends. The book's primary protagonist has become the archetype of moral courage and a political paragon of anti-oppression. I'm talking about Moses. And though we'll get to Moses in the upcoming two weeks, this morning I want to be clear that we are certain on how we got to this point in history. I want to make sure we're clear about the complicated history that made the character of Moses necessary in the first place. For none of us are born in a historical bubble. For you and I are not just makers of history, we are made by history. And if we want any and want to have any insight into what humanity can do, then I believe that we should give greater scrutiny to what we have already done. The book of Exodus, my friends, begins with the children of Israel in the land of Egypt. The Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, ended up grafted into the mighty Egyptian empire. Jacob, who we also know as Israel, had a son named Joseph. Joseph was a curious and interesting young man. Joseph had big dreams that his family could not contain. Joseph wore colorful clothes, a colorful jacket in particular, that his brothers viewed as kind of queer. Joseph had ambitions to do more, to have more, and to be more, so that others ended up viewing him as kind of odd. That which others considered normal didn't make much sense to Joseph. Society's view of success did not comfort him. His classmates couldn't conform him. His brothers could neither control nor contain his aspirations. Thus, his community needed to get rid of him. His brothers sold him off into slavery. 
And I have to believe, one has to wonder why it is that someone else's uniqueness can, can become a cause of great offense to others. One has to wonder, did Joseph's uniqueness remind his brothers too much of something that they were not? Or did Joseph remind his brothers too much of something that they were? Maybe it was both. Maybe Joseph reminded his brothers of something they were, yet lacked the courage and confidence to be open and honest about. Maybe this was a source of great pain for Joseph's brothers. Maybe this pain was the source of their hatred toward Joseph. For hate, my friends, is little more than an easy alternative for those of us who would rather ignore root causes. This is why, according to James Baldwin, so many of us cling to hate so stubbornly. Because once hate is gone, you and I will be forced to deal with our pain. But I digress from the story. When Joseph arrives in Egypt, the story takes a dramatic turn. While in prison, someone takes note of Joseph's special gift. One of the king's servants discovers that Joseph, that this idealistic young man with an outsized imagination, can also interpret dreams. Oh, the timing could not have been better, for it was at this very moment that nightmares were plaguing Pharaoh. Does anybody know this biblical story? Do I have any fellow Baptists in here? Each night, the Pharaoh had the same dream. There were seven fat cows, yet seven frail and skinny cows came along and consumed the fat cows. There were seven healthy ears of corn, followed by seven weak and thin ears of corn. And when the king of Egypt summoned Joseph, Joseph provided this interpretation to the king. He said, for seven years there will be bounty in the land. For the next seven years there will be famine. So store up grain, store up crops, and water now during this time of plenty so that the nation might endure the lean years. It's Joseph's gifts. Joseph's gifts that propelled him from the dungeon pit all the way to the palace. He went from enslavement in Egypt to having authority in, in, in Egypt. His eccentricities catapulted him from condemned to commended, from misunderstood and maligned to beloved and celebrated. In fact, when Joseph's father and brothers showed up in Egypt searching for food during the famine, Pharaoh rewarded Joseph's people with open arms and embrace them into the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I'm here. This is the first point that I want to make this morning. Don't be scared to dream. 
Don't feel pressure to conform to somebody else's expectations of you. And don't be scared to march to the beat of your own drum. This is a particularly important point for those entering the freshman class of 2021 or those of you who are starting at any one of our professional schools or graduate programs. Many of you are here, why? Because you played by the rules. Some of you are here because you developed undeniable discipline. Others of you learned the requisite skills of test-taking and academic decorum. But I'm here to say all of us have a little Joseph in us. We have that inner voice that wants us to break free. Late in the midnight hour, we envision a life that's different than the ones our parents desire for us. Bolder than the political choices presented to us and more creative than any curriculum that any college can offer us. You know, I know that you know, I know that you know that you know that God has put something deep down on the inside of you. You know that God has made you different and unique in ways that others may never understand. And thus, you know that if you just go along with the crowd, you might just extinguish the potential unique gift that God has deposited right inside of your heart. Don't let anyone Dampen your dream. Oh, my friends, you don't believe me? Ask Lucretia Mott. In the early 19th century, few expected little more from white women in America other than managing domestic affairs. Mott was a teacher who at the outset of her career became enraged that men were being paid more than women despite the same education and the same training. Add to this, Lucretia Mott felt uh, a call on her life to preach the good news of the gospel. She wanted to preach about Almighty God, a God who for Muffet condemned the aspects of early 19th century that most Christians took for granted denying equal rights to women, the enslavement of Africans, and the barbarity directed toward Native Americans. Most people wrote Lucretia Mott off as troubled and misguided. Many, including most women, considered her unhinged and emotionally imbalanced. And in 1840, male abolitionists even barred her from the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London, lest she make the women's right issue to dilute the cause of abolitionism. Yet each time someone sought to block her, she would push harder. Why? Because in Mott's words, any great change must expect opposition because it shakes the very foundation of privilege. Lucretia Mott is an incredible lesson in women's history. Oh, you can come through Harvard, you can go through this place, you can be, you can have decorum, you can be well-behaved, but I think you ought to remember that well-behaved women seldom make history. Don't let anyone dampen your dream. That's your gift to the world. You don't believe me? Oh, ask Bayard Rustin. 
In the early and mid 20th century, he was everything one wasn't supposed to be. He was African-American in a segregated society. He was openly gay in a homophobic culture. He was a Quaker when most blacks were Baptists and Methodists. And due to his public commitment to economic justice during the height of McCarthyism, he was tagged a communist at the height of the Cold War. Yet it was Rustin who introduced a young preacher by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. to the philosophy of nonviolent direct action. It was Rustin who from the shadows served as the principal organizer of the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom that we'll celebrate tomorrow. And it was Rustin who worked to identify the intersections of racial, gender, economic, and sexual justice when most activists were just focused on one. Yet Rustin, had the gift of insight and foresight. This is why it's recorded that when Dr. King once suggested to Rustin, Bayard, maybe the times just aren't ready for you. Rustin replied to Dr. King, I am a man of my times. My times just don't know it yet. Students don't let anybody dampen your dream. And I wasn't gonna say this, but if you don't believe me, why don't you ask Dr. Augustus White III? Oh, in 1953, when he entered the campus of Brown University, there were only a handful of African Americans. And some thought he was there just simply to be a football star even though he went both ways and played wide receiver. But it was in 1953 and 54 until his graduating year in 1957 that he knew God had put something unique in him. And it was that uniqueness that nobody was gonna force him south to go to a historically black college or university. Nobody was gonna tell him that he had to go to Meharry School of Medicine. And it was that uniqueness that catapulted him to the West Coast and he became the first African-American to graduate from Stanford School of Medicine. Oh, it's Dr. Augustus White who would tell you that fleecy locks and dark complexion cannot forfeit nature's care. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in black, white, red, brown, and yellow the same. If I were as tall as the reach the pole or grasp the ocean at a span, I must be measured by my soul. Why? Because the mind and heart are the standards of a man and a woman. Oh, that's what Dr. White will tell you. Ain't that right, Dr. White? Y'all give him a God bless you. Don't let anybody dampen your dream. Joseph, because of his dreams, he was able to change the fate of his people. It all began with the dream. 
As Harriet Tubman put it, every great act begins with a dream. We all have to remember that we all have the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars and change the world. Don't let anybody dampen your dream. But beyond not letting anybody dampen your dream, there's another point that I want you to leave this place with today. And that is, in your dreaming, don't get discouraged. Discouragement is the dark underside of our capacity to dream. This is why I noted Lucretia Mott. This is why we should remember Bayard Rustin. And this is why we should remember Joseph. Why? Because we must remember their whole stories. Not just the honors and the accolades, not just the realization of their dreams, but the many dreams that they had deferred. You and I have a penchant to look back through history and remember the good. We like to remember the successful moments. We honor achievement, but often in the process, what are we doing? We're just simply rewriting history. Think about it. This story in Exodus begins with a Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph. He knew not of Joseph's contributions to Egypt. He knew not of Joseph's accolades and awards. He knew not of Joseph's prominence of place in Egyptian history and culture. But even this line obscures and rewrites the complicated history of Joseph's biography. For remember, before Joseph was heralded, he was heckled. Before Joseph was revered, he was reviled. And before his dreams were realized, they were denounced and deferred. Don't you ever forget the underside of success. Never forget the pain and sacrifice that comes with progress. It's easy to lift up Joseph as a hero of his people. It's easy to talk about Lucretia Mott now as a champion of justice. It's easy to find inspiration in Bayard Rustin receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom long after his death in 2013. It's easy to talk about Dr. Gus White being one of the premier orthopedic surgeons on this planet. But do we find similar inspiration in the persecution they endured, the hatred they encountered, and all the heartbreak that they had to suffer? If we, if you and I are going to dream about changing the world, we must accept the reality that we may first have to live in a nightmare. Look around, my friends. We are living in dangerous times. 20th century fascism is now back in fashion. Klansmen no longer feel the need to hide beneath hoods or computer screens. And what many thought were the bygone forces of sexism, racism, and anti-Semitism have returned to the main stage of American life for an encore performance. Our nation has become a repre reprehensible reality show. Each week, each week on this show, our president pardons, pardons more apprentices of bigotry. 
Each week, he tells the pathetic David Dukes, Richard Spences, and Joe Arpaios of the world, you're hired. And each week, he further depletes the vaults of democracy by insulting the institutions that protect us, institutions that serve as checks and balances on his autocratic aspirations. I know some of you may be thinking in your head, I'm veering too far into political territory here for a preacher. I know some may feel that, oh, I came to church to pray, not to hear about politics. But I, I'm here to say this morning that this is not a matter of partisan bickering or political positioning. For when it comes to certain fundamental claims on what it means to be equal in the eyes of God, there are some things that as Christians we must remain unequivocal. Let's not repeat history. We know. We know what happened in Nazi Germany. We witnessed what happened in apartheid South Africa. We realized the effects of the so-called cultural revolution in China. We still feel the shame over our non-response to mass genocide in Rwanda. And if we, as people of faith, don't learn from the past, when we're doomed to repeat that past, We'll rewrite the sadistic calligraphy of Caligula of the Roman Empire and the cursive of Hitler into a 21st century code that damages all of us. I'm here to say, and I'm here to declare, as an evangelical, if Donald Trump's hand-picked evangelicals want to be spiritual press agents for his foolishness, then fine. If Jerry Falwell Jr. wants to extend his father's legacy of religious bigotry and spiritual violence, go ahead. And if prosperity-preaching televangelists want to sell their soul for 30 pieces of silver, then none of us should be surprised. But we cannot just sit in our pews and pray silently while the name of Christ is exploited for all the world to witness. We must dream. And then we must act. Often so many of us, I hear this from students in my classes all the time. We talk about what we would have done in a previous historical moment. Most of us declare that we would have been with the abolitionists. We would have marched for women's rights. We would have been on the front lines for civil rights. In our minds, we were all activists. We rewrite history. We place ourselves on the right side of the struggle. But I'm here to say that today, it's not a hypothetical. You don't have to ask where you would have been or what you would have done, but rather we can ask ourselves today, where are we and what are we doing? For one day, we will have to give an account to our children. They will ask, what were you doing in 2017? One day, your grandchildren will ask, what did grandma and grandpa say during the reign of 45? But most importantly, one day we will hear from the Lord. 
Did you live up and live out to the dream that I placed inside of you? Did you maximize the benefits and the privileges that I bequeathed to you? Do you seek to deliver me when I was oppressed? Did you seek to welcome me when I was estranged? Fight for me when I was Muslim banned? Speak up for me when I was pushed out of the military, provide me sanctuary when they tried to rip my family apart and protect my voice when they called me fake. Did you look out for me? And we should be able to say, we did it for the least of these, Lord, and thus, we did it for you. And we won't have to rewrite history. Dream and then act.